0: Welcome to the OnScript Podcast, your home for world-class
1: conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast, and
0: stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript.
1: Hey, everyone. Welcome back to OnScript. This is Matt Lynch coming to you from Regent College in Vancouver. We've got a live-recorded episode for you that we hope you enjoy. And thanks so much to all of you who give regularly, whether um, monthly or occasionally. Some people uh, we, I see their their names pop up periodically giving uh, one-off gifts. Really appreciate that. That enables us to do what we're doing. And best thing you can do if you're not able to give is to give us uh, a rating or review on apple podcasts or on whichever platform you fancy and ideally it'll be a four or five star review Uh, but hey if you need to be honest about what you're listening to and give it a two star or one star uh, then maybe maybe just do it mentally Um, and uh, we appreciate that all right thanks so much for listening hope you enjoy this episode Hello,
0: Onscript listeners. We are coming to you live today with a very special episode from Wycliffe Hall at the University of Oxford. And today we have the privilege of welcoming Dr. David Moffat from the University of St. Andrews, who's going to uh, talk to us about his new book, Rethinking the Atonement, New Perspectives on Jesus's Death, Resurrection, and Ascension. So, David, welcome to Wycliffe and welcome
2: to Onscript. Yeah, thank you. It's a real pleasure to be here.
0: Just to say a bit more about David, David is reader in New Testament at the University of St. Andrews, where he has been since 2013. He taught previously at Duke Divinity School and Campbell, um, Campbell University Divinity School, and much of his scholarship has been on the book of Hebrews, including a very influential monograph entitled Atonement and the Logic of Resurrection in the Epistle to the Hebrews, for which he won the Manfred T. Lautenschläger Prize in 2013. So, I think it's fair to say that um, David has been thinking about atonement for a long time now. <laughs> um, his first book came out uh, in 2011. So, we're well over a decade into um, your publishing on this topic. So, um, I thought it'd be good to ask just how did you get interested in thinking about atonement in Hebrews or rethinking atonement in Hebrews to begin with?
2: Right, right. So, I mean, I think that question could probably take up the whole podcast. Um, so to try and be brief, um, I began um, a project, and perhaps some of your other questions will, will touch on some of this, so I'll not try not to say too much at the front end. I began working on the project thinking about Hebrews and Jesus' resurrection. And it was actually, uh, the more that I thought I saw evidence for the resurrection as an assumption, um, and an assumption that in- involved a discrete bodily event, um, the more that I began thinking about that, and this actually cuts against most of the interpretive tradition in Hebrews uh, I've, I've discovered really in the the mid-20th to late 20th century, um, the more that I began thinking about that, the more I came face to face with a problem in my understanding of the role of the crucifixion and the way in which the crucifixion in Hebrews was functioning uh, in terms of jesus sacrificial self-offering so um i don't know if you want me to say more about that Absolutely. but that was the germ that was really the genesis of it um i really discovered the more i pushed for seeing the influence of jesus resurrection in the text and i thought that there were strong arguments for it the more i came face to face with real problems in how i understood sacrifice and in how i understood jesus sacrifice in particular. Huh. and that led me into rethinking atonement.
0: Right. And it, when you say it's a rethinking, obviously that says something maybe it hints at your background. Maybe yeah. it'd be helpful just how did you become I think it's always interesting to hear how people become biblical scholars.
2: Right. Yeah. Um
0: so how did you begin to rethink this what was your background that maybe was different from this and how did you
2: Sure. Um end up- i grew up in um I think it's fair to say, a fairly reformed evangelical context. Um, it was Baptist, um, I'm still Baptist. Um, so I think, uh, probably many people will be able to fill in certain understandings of atonement, just based on talking about this reformed background as a context. Um, I actually went to my undergraduate vowing the one place I would never go was seminary, um, but really had a profound personal sense of call, uh, and a sense that my reasons for making that decision were, were just not justifiable. Um, and so I thought, okay, I probably should go to seminary. I had always enjoyed thinking about theology, had always enjoyed reading scripture, um, and always wanted to know more. I just didn't think that it would be a path to wealth, and fame and all of these other things that uh, I thought I wanted to pursue. Um, so that was all kind of off the table and like, okay, I'm going to go to seminary. So um, began taking biblical languages and doing some courses in church history, etc., in my undergraduate, um, and then went to seminary debating, should I go into theology proper or biblical studies? And I really do think that some of that Reformed background Um, had a huge influence on the decision I finally made that there was a sense of like, okay, if I want to really think theologically, I need to have a good grounding in the text. So that's what took me into New Testament. Right. And then ultimately on to do a PhD. And
0: then you've been teaching since.
2: Yes. Right, right. For, for a long time now. Which is a great privilege and joy. Mm,
0: Absolutely. So where does this new book fit into your journey?
2: Yeah, well, um, as I was saying earlier, I never intended to rethink the atonement. Uh, I knew how the atonement worked. Um, I had had some really good grounding. Um, I think sometimes the Reformed background does an outstanding job of really giving you a lot of good theological grounding and good grounding in Scripture. Um, I feel like I had a lot of that. Um, so I had a certain account of the atonement and of Jesus' sacrifice, which is, of course, bigger than just Reformed theology. But um, I, I knew how that all worked. <clears throat> but Hebrews had always interested me. Um, I found when I looked at Hebrews, this was not an author who was behaving in any of the ways that, um, say, my the pastors I had heard growing up or even the professors who had taught me in seminary, Hebrews was not behaving in any of the ways that uh, we were being taught to interpret scripture. And this, this is just had fascinated me. Even as an undergraduate, I think one of the first papers I wrote was on Hebrews. Um, so that had always been in the background as an, a point of interest. And as I got into Hebrews um, and really started studying it, I was struck by this sort of general consensus it's it's it banned theological positions uh you had people who were shall we say um yeah on the very reformed conservative side of things all the way to existentialist theologians um who all agreed that hebrews had very little space or maybe even simply rejected a notion of jesus resurrection for uh, the author's understanding of jesus death as a sacrifice and that just struck me as so interesting because. I thought I was seeing evidence in the text for the resurrection thus my doctoral dissertation. But um, as I got into that, I discovered that there was a problem um, or at least it seemed to me that there was a problem. And it, it basically was this, I knew that the crucifixion was effectively the sum total of Jesus offering of himself as a sacrifice. Hebrews kept saying, that Jesus offers himself as a sacrifice to the Father when he ascends through the heavens, enters the heavenly holy of holies, and appears before the Father, say nine twenty-four through 26. Um, the tendency in a lot of modern scholarship is to view this, and I'm going to speak in some very broad generalities here, but to view this as a kind of metaphorical interpretation of the significance of the crucifixion all kinds of ways to complicate that, okay? I'm not saying that everybody denied the resurrection in Hebrews. That, that That's just not true. Um, but there was a tendency to view the language of Jesus' self-offering before the Father, either in terms of some kind of um, culmination or maybe after event, uh, or to really just flat out argue that this was a kind of existentialist theology in which the meaning of the crucifixion Was being explained by all of this heavenly appearance language. Well, once you put a discrete bodily resurrection into that picture, suddenly that unity between cross and heavenly presentation, however you work that out, okay, that unity could no longer stand, at least not in a simplistic way, because the resurrection. Suddenly, meant that whatever was going on in the cross, it was distinct in certain ways from the ascending through the heavens, passing through the heavens in Hebrews four fourteen, and then uh, especially toward the end of chapter nine, appearing before the Father to before the face of the Father uh, to offer Himself. The bodily resurrection meant that suddenly that appearing before the Father to offer Himself was um, meaning something very different than what I had always thought. Like it wasn't just a way of explaining the cross. And this blew my mind because I, I just thought this made no sense at all. I could not make any sense of sacrifice or atonement as I understood them with the focal point being on Jesus' heavenly presentation before the Father. Mm-hmm. Um, That is what got me rethinking all of this. Uh, I don't know how, if you want any more oh. specific on that, but. Well,
0: let's, let's, um. <clears throat> Let's maybe just back up a yeah. second because there are two words that are really key to this whole discussion and they're also really slippery. Yeah. Atonement Yeah. and sacrifice. Yeah. So when you say atonement, what do you mean by that and yeah. what do you maybe not mean by that?
2: Uh, that's extremely helpful. Thank you. Um, so in the introduction to this book, one of the things that I try to do is address this very question. We tend to use the language of atonement, I think it's fair to say. I can certainly cite some theologians who do this, but I'm not, I'm not a systematician, so uh, those of you who might be listening who are thinking, no, no, that's not fair, forgive me, uh, I'm not trying to reduce all systematic theology to this point, but certainly in my experience and in some um, of the reading I've done, it seems to me that we tend to use the language of atonement as a kind of big umbrella category that is almost, if not equivalent to the concept soteriology. It's all the things that Jesus does to save people. And then what, uh, and certainly I I remember being taught this in in seminary. Um, There's a way then of thinking about the atonement, where you have lots of different biblical images um, that can be viewed, um, and I thought you were going to push me on this word, as metaphors, You can view that as maybe like a gemstone, um, and each of these different images is a facet on the gemstone. But at the center of the gemstone is the crucifixion. And so you can turn the gemstone and you can see, oh, here's here's a problem. Um, let's say enslavement uh, and you need redemption. Um, so that's one of the facets of the gemstone. And You can turn it again and say, oh, here's a problem sin and you need forgiveness, uh, or here's a problem, God's wrath, and it needs to be propitiated, and et cetera, okay? But there's a fundamental reductionism that's involved in this model to say that all of these different images are um, tend to be uh, metaphor, metaphorical ways of speaking that all point to the real problem, which is a more abstract notion of human moral failing and God's wrath and the need for forgiveness. Uh, Okay. So, um, if you, if you have that as the basic notion of atonement, then what can tend, what can sometimes happen is that when you go back to very particular biblical contexts, let's say sacrifice, and you start seeing the language of atonement being used in the context of Levitical sacrifice, There's a history behind that, uh, and I touch on this a bit in the book as well. Um, But you start seeing that language used, there can be a sense in which you can begin to mash up, as it were, these different ideas and imagine that what happens in Jewish sacrifice is in some way um, exactly what's going on in the crucifixion. All right. So what I'm trying to do when I use this language is recognize that one, this is the way that we tend to use it in English theological discourse. So I'm not ready to just throw the language out. But two, um, and even in my dissertation that you referred to, I tried to be very careful um, and speak about sacrificial atonement or Levitical atonement as a way of saying there might Uh, We can come back to that gemstone model if you'd like. I think it's wrong. Um, But even if it's not wrong, there's still a way of saying that there's something very particular that's going on in sacrifice that is solving very specific problems, which is not equivalent to all of Jesus' salvific work or or even all the salvific work that God did for his people uh, prior to, to the advent of his son, uh, and the incarnation, um, that there's something very particular going on and that, uh, that thing that sacrifice is doing, uh, that the Hebrew word is compare, um, is probably best viewed as some way of removing a thing, which is a hindrance to the relationship between God and his people. And if you don't remove that thing, there are all kinds of bad problems that can result including God's wrath breaking out against the people, including God, even abandoning his residence in the temple or the tabernacle. Uh, so it's, it's a problem that has to be solved, but forgiveness, uh, and people like Roy Gain have really made this point, I think exceptionally well. Um, even James Barr actually before him, but, um, these are things that happened subsequent to that removal. So in a sense, Atonement might not be the best word to render, Keper, but again, this is part of our translation history, um, thanks largely to decisions that Tyndale made. Uh, But yeah, I'm trying to use it in two distinct ways. One, recognizing this bigger category of soteriology. Um, And I, I guess I would say, in that sense, Jesus solves all the problems that keep God and humanity apart. But what I'm arguing different from that gemstone idea, is that he doesn't solve all the problems in the same way at the same time. But then when we start looking at some of these specific problems, sacrifice is hugely important, not just for God dealing with his people under the Mosaic covenant, but also for God dealing with his people under the new covenant. And that's helping solve certain problems, I would argue, even now, not just in the past, but even now, that there's an ongoingness to that. And that I would want to talk about in terms of sacrificial atonement.
0: Right. So what what's a sacrifice?
2: Yeah. Um, okay. In short, um, a sacrifice, first of all, is a process. It's not reducible to a single event. This was really one of the pennies that dropped as I was banging my head on Hebrews kept wanting to pushed me to think about Jesus in heaven. I kept wanting to say, no, it's all about the crucifixion. And it occurred to me that in Leviticus, there's way more that happens in a sacrifice than just killing an animal. Cause I, I had read Leviticus before. Uh, and when that thought occurred to me, um, I think it was that day or the next day I sat down with Leviticus and read Leviticus straight through in one sitting and I asked just one question. And it was what does the death of the animal do, and that really was a penny that dropped. We tend to use the language of sacrifice as if it's synonymous with killing something, but that's not Leviticus. Um, it's also not even pagan rituals. Uh, but that's a whole different, <laughs> you know, a whole different kettle of fish. Um, but in Leviticus, it's clear that first, well, maybe not even first, but in, at, early in the process, the animal is slaughtered only then are its blood and parts of its body taken to the various altars depending on the sacrifice. Which means, by the way, no animals are slaughtered on any of the altars at the Jerusalem temple. Now that, again, this is just there in the text, right? Or in the tabernacle in Leviticus. It's there. But I had never seen it because I just assumed altars are for killing animals. But they're not, (laughs) No animals are killed on the altars. That part of the process is subsequent to the act of slaughter. And if you just look at the text, this is self-evident. A couple of quick reasons. One, there's always a fire burning on the outer altar. Now, just take a minute and imagine. No, don't imagine. Um, (laughs) Trying to put a live animal in the midst of a fire, reaching in, (laughs) slitting his throat, collecting the blood, butchering it, washing it, salting it, putting parts on it doesn't make sense. Um, Second reason: only priests get to approach the altar in Jewish religion. Um, that, and yet, at least in Leviticus, it looks like the offerer is typically the one who slaughters individual sacrifices. But see, the offerer, the offerer can't go to the altar. So again, there's a distinct plus. Leviticus says. You kill the animal either before, like at the the entrance to the tabernacle or to the north side, uh, a space on the north of the outer altar. So for all these reasons, right, slaughter is only part of a sacrifice. It involves a lot of other elements. And these other elements actually um, move in a particular direction. Um, Even before you slaughter the animal, you have to bring it to the tabernacle or to Jerusalem and to the temple. Or you come to the temple and buy it there. But there's there's already a directionality involved here. Then the animal is killed. Then the blood and parts of the animal are taken to the altar. And then in some cases, uh, especially with sin off, certain sin offerings, and then on the Day of Atonement, the blood even goes in to the tabernacle or into the temple in Jerusalem. So there's actually a very, there's a direction here. Something is moving from, the, as it were the mundane world and it's something that belongs to an offer or the offer purchased they can't you can't offer a wild animal right and that's because this is costly for an offer. Uh, it actually costs you something to offer a sacrifice and then you are going through a process which conveys the item from the rightful owner, humanly speaking to, the rightful owner, divinely speaking. In other words, you are giving a gift to God. That's what's at the heart of Jewish sacrifice and Levitical sacrifice. So I think the best way to think about it is to think about it in terms of giving God a gift and um, in Jewish sacrifice, everything depends on whether or not God will accept the gift. There is no magic here. You do not manipulate the God of Israel. Just read the prophets. If God chooses not to accept the gift, you're in trouble because the mediation in the relationship is broken down. Um, But if God chooses to accept the gift, then there are certain things, benefits, that the worshiper can receive. One benefit can be fellowship with your God. I mean, lots of sacrifice is just about praise and worship and thanksgiving. It's not about sin at all. But then another benefit is there's a problem in the relationship. I messed up. Here's a way to try and, and yeah, be reconciled, which is really what atonement means. Um, and that reconciliation is at the very end of this process in which God, after accepting the gift, at least notionally, is willing to then forgive. So that, that's how I would want to think about sacrifice. It's not just an act of killing something, uh, It's not an act of, it's not a punitive act in which you're taking something out on the animal because the animal is actually the gift that's given to God. Um, There is a punitive element when uh, there are certain sins that have to be dealt with. This is especially clear in the guilt offering uh, where not only do you have to give an expensive gift, a ram, you also have to pay a 20% fine. But it's not the animal that gets punished. It's the offerer who is actually being punished. Uh, So there is a punitive element here. Um, But that's, and again, that's only for some sacrifices. But ultimately, it's a process in which a gift is conveyed into God's presence. And um, under certain circumstances, uh, if God is happy to accept the gift, there are then certain benefits that accrue to the worshiper.
0: So I mean that was an incredibly thorough explanation of yeah, so, probably <laughs> no I mean that's but that's good because I think it's a, a word that we use all the time and probably we we all sort of assume that we're talking about the same thing yeah. and I just you're obviously not talking about sacrifice in the way that you know it's used in the discourse, um, in sort of casual conversation, which is sort of the point.
2: Yes, that's right. Um, That's right. I'm trying to be very descriptive.
0: Yes. And, and the book is really descriptive. I think this, the point that you just made comes through really, really clearly. Um, I I wonder if I can press you on, on just the, how, if this is true in Hebrews and I'm I'm willing to being that your work is in Hebrews, um, I'm willing to sort of say, okay, in Hebrews... That this, this notion of sacrifice and, um, atonement, I think you've made a really good case for it. Um, my students who are sitting here will, will know that I speak, um, often about Hebrews and David Moffat's work on Hebrews. Um, I wonder, because I'm not a Hebrews person, should we expect that same sort of consistent pattern in the rest of the New Testament? And if so, where do you see it?
2: That's a great question. Um, I, uh. I don't want to assume that uh, what we see in hebrews uh, must be what every author of the new testament mm. or you know even to go bigger every second temple de- sure. would have thought about these matters i think we have to at some level take it on a case-by-case basis mm. having said that i've been struck because once you start thinking in these ways uh y- you you begin to think oh man there may be multiple texts in which I've just assumed certain things that perhaps I should rethink that assumption, okay? Um, I mean, let, let's just take an example. Like we, we talked a little bit about taking blood to the altar. Uh, this is uh, a part of um, most uh, Jewish sacrifices, not all, because not all sacrifice, although the language is the same, mm-hmm. involves an animal at all, right? You, you also have, can give grain, wine can be given, you know, so, um, you know, it's not all about blood, but blood is a major element. And uh, Leviticus 17.11 says that blood is life. Uh, and, you know, that, that again, just blew my, my mind because I knew that blood was a symbol for death. And yet here it was explicitly life. And anyway, lots of people will want to say that I'm wrong on this. Fair enough. We plenty of room to debate this point and how you think about life and death, etc. But it it occurred to me that, well, wait a minute, maybe there are ways to start thinking about blood in the New Testament that might be different. Now, blood is a complex term. It doesn't mean just one thing. We always have to think about the particular context in which it's being used. So that then gets you thinking, are there other places where we get sacrificial ideas and blood being used. And one text is First John 1, 7 through basically 2, 2. And, you know, in 1, 7 through 10, you clearly get sacrificial ideas. You get this idea of um, confessing sin. Um, you get this idea of Jesus being faithful and just to forgive sin. Uh, you get this idea of blood. Um, and um, Jesus is this righteous one. Uh, th- these, are, these are, like, if you were to put these ideas in a graph, they would fall out on the quadrant. That is Jewish sacrifice. Like the language is lining up there. Um, certainly in the, uh, commentaries that I've looked at modern commentaries, blood is, is read as, uh, a metaphor or a synecdoche or something. It's referring to Jesus death. But what if it's not, what if there is actually referring to Jesus life, um, I don't say a lot about this text in this book, but it is a text that I've, I'm working on and I, I have a book project I'm currently working on where I'll, I'll hopefully say a lot more about 1 John and some other texts. But in this 1 John text, um, I have occasionally had people ask or heard people ask, why do we still need to confess our sins if everything was taken care of in the blood in Jesus' death? I think this is actually a really shrewd question. Like, if everything is done in the past, why is there a need to confess sin now? And there's a tendency, again, not everyone says this. I'm not saying they do. But there's a tendency to make it a kind of anthropological point. Like, it's really good for you to confess your sin. But there's no sense in which there's still something going on between you and God. Because, you know, Jesus' blood and it's his death and that was all in the past. But I think there are reasons to question that, which bring me then to your, your question. Um, in 2, 1, and 2, the author says, my little children, I write these things, presumably what he was just talking about, about the need to confess, so that you might not sin. And that's the ideal. Don't sin. But what if you do? Well, it's game over, right? No. If anyone does sin... We have an advocate with the Father, and he is our, I, I think there's a good case here for hell, the word is hilasmos to be translated atoning sacrifice, but in that case, the focal point is on where Jesus is with the Father, and by implication, what he is doing, advocating for us. That looks a lot like what Hebrews spells out in a lot more detail, that that the Son, as the embodied human Jesus, passes through the heavens, offers himself, presents himself to the Father, and now actively intercedes for his people. 725. And you know, it does, I think I say this somewhere in the book, raise the question you know, on these texts like first John or in Hebrews, what would happen if Jesus stopped advocating for us? What would happen if Jesus stopped interceding for us? I, I think it's a question worth thinking about. Um, for these authors, it's impossible. Jesus wouldn't stop doing that. first mean, John, if we are faithless, he is faithful. Hebrews, he is a faithful high priest. He's going to continue performing this, this work. Um, but if we at least allow this as a kind of thought experiment, uh, certainly in Hebrews and well, ultimately in this first John text as well, since you wanted me to get outside of Hebrews, um, the whole logic of the need for ongoing confession, I think is rooted in the fact that Jesus is actively advocating as the sacrifice in the presence of the father. So it's not just a bit of anthropological, you know, oh, it's good for the soul. It's actually that there is a means to deal with sin. And that means is the ongoing work of Jesus. John doesn't use this language, but it looks like a high priestly idea. Um, And if that's right, then there's at least one text where a similar logic seems to be in play. Um, And uh, I have suspicions that there are others. I talk about Acts. Mm -hmm. Um, a bit in this uh, one chapter of this book. Uh, And, you know, I'm, I'm still trying to figure out if I should dive into Paul. But, you know, Romans 8, 34 through 39 is there. It is. Who is the one who condemns? It's Christ Jesus who died. But even more, even more, was raised and is seated at the right hand of God, just waiting for everything to wrap up. No, interceding for us. Not only do you have an allusion to Psalm 110 here, Uh, But you have this idea of Jesus actively doing something. And what's the follow-on logic? Therefore, nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. If it's not sacrificial, it at least in Paul looks like an idea of um, maintaining the relationship between God and his people. I think Paul certainly can talk about covenant. Uh, I think this is a, a way in which Paul is talking about Jesus, yes, he died. Of course he died. That is absolutely essential. It does important work. It solves certain problems. But equally, it's important that he rose from the dead. And equally, it's important that he ascended and is seated at God's right hand. And equally, it's important that he's interceding for us. All of that together is contributing to our confidence, according to Paul, that this relationship is going to be maintained. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Why? Because Jesus loves us so much that he is even now interceding for us. It's not just that he loved us so much that he died for us, although that is an absolutely, that is there, and it's a yes. Some people have read me as saying no to that. I find this really strange, but it's a yes. But it's a more than, um... And so those are a couple of texts outside Hebrews. So is that I do- do what you would do with like Romans five? Because yeah. I'm not ready to go on the record on Romans one, <laughs> but I do have thoughts about this. Um sure. I think it actually starts already in four twenty five.
0: Okay. Well I mean yeah. I think we probably agree on this. Yeah. Uh, yeah. but I think, you know, that's a that's a text that if if you take your view that atonement is about more than just death. Yes. That you have to do something with death and blood. And
2: that's blood. exactly right. It in- opens up possibilities that I think <laughs> have tended to be missed in a lot of modern exegetical reflection. Whether or not that's right, okay, maybe not. But there are at least possibilities that become mm-hmm. live options that if we just view blood as automatically language that is metaphorical for death, those options are foreclosed. They don't even occur to us but allowing that blood could mean more that in some contexts it clearly does mean death but in if there are sacrificial ideas in play it's a big if then suddenly there's a possibility that the language of blood might not mean what we just assume it must mean
0: or it might not mean only Exactly, yeah. we might It might not be truncated. That's right. I think that's maybe yeah. what I would want to say about that text.
2: Well, I think that's a good point. And let me just please come back to this whole idea that sacrifice is a process. Right. And when it involves an animal, it involves slaughter. Mm-hmm. So th- there's no sense in which that should be forgotten or dismissed or only preparatory. But um, But there's way more going on. And within that process, mm-hmm. there may actually be elements that are more important than the slaughter uh but uh let me also add to that i have no intention here of reducing uh everything i want to say about jesus simply to the category of sacrifice mm. uh i don't want to run a new reductionism here sure so and th- that means that there could be a whole lot of things associated with jesus death yeah. but they might not all fit into the category of what jesus does in his sacrificial work Right,
0: right. Um, so I think I, I have a number of questions and, uh, and directions we could go from from what you just said. But maybe I'll jump um, into to one of the I think, at least the more I don't know if the contents particular, maybe it's provocative, but the title of the chapter is provocative. You say it is not finished. Yes. Um,
2: yes, that was intentionally provocative,
0: right? Yeah. I mean, it's got it. You know, we've got to yeah. want to read the chapter. Yeah. it does that really well. So, um, when you say it is not finished, yeah. what's not finished, and yeah. what is finished?
2: That's that's an outstanding question. Um, you know, what I found is that there is a tendency in some um, theological and even uh, exegetical um, circles to uh, assume that the it is a place to hang an entire. Uh, doctrine of the atonement it's where we can just hang soteriology what i would want to say is and i'm not ready to ultimately say okay here's what the it is but what i want to say is we've got to think in terms of the gospel of john and whatever is going on there my suspicion is it has to do with the rule of the devil being cast out Um, but and again i wouldn't want to say that's that means it's reducible to that but what i don't think it is really is an entire doctrine of the atonement um and i also don't think that it fits very well it gets us in the question of the passover mm-hmm. and the day of atonement which uh i think it stands to reason that a second temple jew would not confuse in the ways that we have tended to do mm-hmm. i sometimes like to say uh, this might not work in a british audience i don't know but um an american uh is not going to confuse the 4th of July with Christmas. And yet (laughs) 2000 years from now, frankly, even now you could say, oh, but there are so many things. I mean, look, Christmas is really about American individualism and the ability to go out and buy whatever you want. And we even talk (laughs) about Christmas in July. And I mean, there could be ways in which someone who's not part of this culture could see points of contact and maybe confuse these things, but within the culture, they would be distinct. And Passover and day of atonement, I think within a Jewish second temple context would be pretty clearly distinct. So whatever's going in John, I wanna link it more closely with Passover. Um, And then what is not finished, I actually would wanna then, as I do in that chapter, especially think about what's going on in Hebrews where the folk, well, Passover, I actually do think is alluded to in Hebrews in important ways and located with the death of Jesus. But when it comes to this day of atonement idea, the key point here is the direction that the high priest travels. And the high priest goes into the Holy of Holies to offer the blood in a sacrificial way. This is explicitly stated in Hebrews 9, 7. And Jesus traverses that same path as he passes through the, or an analogous path, as he passes through the heavens and enters this heavenly Holy of Holies to present himself before the Father. And there, he performs his high priestly ministry. Uh, That is at least his ongoing intercession. That is not finished. That is ongoing. And in Hebrews 9.28, but also again in 10.35 through 39, there's an idea that's stated very clearly that Jesus will return to his waiting people. Um, This, I think, is still modeled on, by analogy, on what the high priest does on the day of atonement. He goes into the Holy of Holies to perform a certain sacrificial work, arguably in the second temple period to intercede for the people, but there's not nearly, there's some evidence, but not, not as much evidence as we might, we might be surprised to learn there's not a ton of evidence, but arguably to do some sort of work of intercession. When that work is completed, he then returns to the people. Um, but that, that I think is very different than what's going on in the Gospel of John at the crucifixion.
0: Oh, wow. okay. Say more about the directionality that you want to press because that's a really—it's an interesting. I mean, it's an interesting point with um, with Passover. That, yeah. um But it, that has its own chapter in the book too. Yeah. The directionality of sacrifice and the incarnation. Um. So what what point are you trying to make with, um? And this is again back in Hebrews, but. <laughs> um, but what, what, are you, what are you after there? Okay. What's yeah. at stake?
2: So um, we can go outside of Hebrews for a moment. Um, <laughs> all right. If it's correct to say that in Levitical sacrifice and then in Jewish sacrifice as and as when people reflected on this, um, I'm not presuming that everyone did. But if there is this concept that I am bringing a gift to God's house, right? What is God's house? The temple. It's where God in some way on earth dwells in a very particular and special way to the point that only one individual can go into his throne room, the Holy of Holies, and only that once a year, and that's the high priest, right? So there's a very real sense for many Jews of God in some way dwelling within his house in Jerusalem, okay? Um, if the idea in sacrifice is bringing a gift to the God who dwells in that house in Jerusalem and then handing the gift to a priest who then takes the gift and conveys it into God's presence, into his house in some way, and even ultimately beyond just God in Jerusalem, but into his heavenly presence, uh, then what I'm Suggesting is that in, in this chapter that you mentioned, in the directionality, and, and I'm willing to allow that to be more of a conceptual word, but in the directionality of the incarnation, um, well, maybe especially in some of the Johannine texts, when Jesus dies, he is very clearly conceived of as being sent away by the Father. He is away from the Father. When he dies, only then does he return to the father. And it's that return in which he actually traces the very direction that a sacrifice traces. Now, I'm not saying John does all of that, uh, but certainly I think Hebrews is thinking in these ways. Um, and this idea of Jesus being sent away, I think, I think it's there in Hebrews 3.1. Jesus is the apostle, the sent one and the high priest of our confession, the returning, the one who enters God's heavenly presence. But even Paul can talk this way in Galatians 4. Mm -hmm. He was sent away by the father to be born of a woman. Uh, Now, if we think about the incarnation in that way, then there's something very strange if we assume that the crucifixion is the sum total of Jesus offering of himself to God as a sacrifice. And that strange thing is, He's away from the Father. It's only after his resurrection that he ascends and returns to the Father. And it's exactly in his return to the Father that in various points in the New Testament, not just Hebrews, right? Even in John, Jesus says, I am going to my Father's house. That's got to be heavenly temple language, I think. Um, There's this idea that he is going to return to his Father. And even in John, he's going to be doing something making things ready in some way Um, but in hebrews what he does uh, i think conceptually would make very good sense to a second temple jew because it's precisely in his going to the father that you would i think almost even naturally start calling up ideas of priests taking sacrifices to god's house and entering god's presence um so that's kind of what I'm trying to get at in a nutshell right. in that chapter, that in the incarnation itself, there are directions that it, once we start thinking about it in these ways, make it a lot less self-evidently obvious that the cross is where Jesus offers himself to the Father. Indeed, I'm not quite sure I'm ready to put this in print, but I haven't, I've thought about it. like, let's, let's think about the cry of dereliction. If Jesus imagines, if Jesus imagines that as he's dying on the cross, he's offering himself to the Father as a sacrifice, I think the cry of dereliction would then mean that he's concluded that God has not accepted the sacrifice. Now, I say that I say that only to make a certain kind of point, and that is, I think this is just the wrong set of concepts to to overlay on what's going on in in these particular aspects of the Incarnation. Um, the one reason that I think we can conclude for certain that God has accepted the sacrifice is that Jesus didn't get forced out of the heavenly Holy of Holies when he showed up there. He was invited to sit at God's right hand. And uh, certainly Hebrews thinks he's still there. Acts seems to think that he's, well, standing, but there in God's presence. Revelation has him standing uh, in relation to the throne in some way mm-hmm. um, and um, Paul. and Paul, yeah, right in Romans 8:34 and um, you know the Johannine epistles, first John has him there with the Father. So that that's the proof that God has accepted the sacrifice mm-hmm. because he not only welcomed the son into his presence, he invited the son to come and take his throne mm-hmm. at his own right hand. However, we conceptualize that.
0: I'm, I'm so aware that we've we've talked a lot about sacrifice and we have talked a lot about atonement and we haven't talked very much about resurrection, which right. um, <clears throat> I, I suppose is maybe not quite as big of a theme in this book as it is in your previous book. But right. um, I think that that connection actually it's really um, I, I mean it's the important piece of that first book and the argument of it. So what? What does resurrection have to do with atonement and sacrifice?
2: Why do we need resurrection? Yeah, much in every way. uh, I think Paul might be happy to say that. Um, (laughs) uh, Okay, again, uh, I hope that no one will take what I'm about to say as as a a reductive account of Mm. even what resurrection could be doing, because that is not my point. But there are certain things I think Hebrews and thinking in these ways about sacrifice Uh, might help us highlight. Let me start by saying, I actually think the resurrection allows Jesus to have gifts to offer the Father. And what he offers the Father is exactly what's offered on the altar. It is analogous to what's offered on the altar. Blood and flesh. It is precisely the bodily resurrection that allows Jesus to present himself, his body, his blood, his flesh. Now, Hebrews doesn't say flesh, okay? We do actually get really interesting uh, patristic reflection where uh, we have some early fathers who are explicit that Jesus offers his flesh to the father as his sacrifice when he ascends uh Noetus, uh, not Noetus. Hippolytus, in his against Noetus, talks very explicitly in this way, as does Origen and some others. Um, but I, I think actually, the resurrection allows Jesus to present a gift before the Father. And what he presents is his humanity. That's the gift that he brings into the presence of God. Um, and this uh, there's this this great passage in. Um, a much later father, whose name I'm blanking on, an Eastern father, um, who who actually says, uh, talking about Hebrews, the father looked at the gift and marveled. And he was so pleased with the gift that he invited the gift to come and sit at his right hand. Right? I mean, this is explicitly sacrificial. I, I use the language gift, but you could translate it sacrifice. Um, he looked at the sacrifice and invited the sacrifice to come sit at his right hand. Um, that might have all kinds of fun and interesting implications for Eucharist, actually. But um, that's that's maybe, maybe for another pro- I'm a low church Baptist, so I have no business talking about that. <laughs> but uh, but Hebrews and thinking this way is, has caused me to really rethink how I think about Eucharist. Um, so that's one way in which resurrection matters. Now, what I argue in my... Di- I did not make this point in my dissertation. At so least I don't think I did. <laughs> um, what I argue in the dissertation is... There's a, a real problem. Th- this is maybe a point that if you'll allow me a minute or two to reflect on it, it it's, there's a real problem that Hebrews is trying to deal with when he thinks about Jesus as a high priest. Mm. However he comes to this conclusion, my suspicion is it's a tradition he already knows. That's a contested point. But however he comes to this conclusion, there's a problem. The problem is, uh, we've got a live audience, I'd love to start quizzing, but the problem is this. Jesus comes from the wrong tribe to legitimately be a priest. The law is very clear, especially Deuteronomy 18, 1 through 5, um, and certainly in sort of later interpretation, the only people who can legitimately serve as priests are those who come from the tribe of Levi. But Hebrews says, and he knows, that our Lord is from the tribe of Judah, about which tribe Moses said nothing with respect to service at the altar. Now, this is remarkable, and it's worth thinking about. Many people read Hebrews as just disparaging and not caring about the Jewish law. Uh, I think this is a mistake. Um, I think the entire argument of Hebrews 7, the argument about Melchizedek, is an argument that is intending to say, I grant the law's authority on earth. But there is another priesthood, and it's it's attested in Scripture with this figure Melchizedek, who is priest of God Most High. That's just what Genesis 14 says. He is a legitimate priest, but he is without father, without mother, that is, without genealogy. This is the key idea that Hebrews is is kicking around in Hebrews 7. Here is a legitimate priest who has no genealogy. Ah, now that might be interesting, because if he's a legitimate priest, whoever this figure is, but he's not a priest because he's descended from Aaron and in the tribe of Levi, or descended from Levi and an Aaronic priest. Well, then how could he be a priest? And again, lots of different ways to interpret what's going on in Hebrews 7, but what the author seizes on is is Melchizedek's life and the fact that he remains a priest. And it's these categories that he then applies to Jesus, who he says by the power of an indestructible life, shows himself to be a legitimate priest. That's a bit of interpretation, but I think that's the sum of the argument there. Now, Hebrews knows full well that Jesus died. So, how can the author say that Jesus has an indestructible life? Well, resurrection, I think, is the most obvious um, assumption to help interpret what the writer is saying there. Mm. The Son of God who has life, in fact, Melchizedek, whatever kind of life Melchizedek has, I think it must be a creaturely kind of life, is compared to the Son of God. And then, interestingly, Jesus is compared to Melchizedek. And I think it's precisely at the level of creaturely life. Before the resurrection, Jesus could die. He died. Hebrews knows this. It matters, in fact, in Hebrews two, it is one of the ways, one of the things that the death of Jesus does is um, defeat the devil in some fashion, release people from enslavement to the devil. And there, I think he's got a Passover illusion going on. But, um, but Jesus didn't stay dead. And now that he has indestructible life, you can never again kill him. The incarnation is once for all because of the resurrection. The Son of God is now forever blood and flesh, whatever that blood and flesh are like now. Um, And uh, so all of that means then, to come back to your question, that the resurrection in Hebrews is a way in which the author is presenting an argument for the legitimacy of Jesus to perform, to be a priest. And it is an argument that respects what the law has to say but views the the law's authority as applying only to these earthly priests. When Jesus ascends through the heavens, he can serve as a priest there because he's no longer on earth. And in this, whatever the priestly service there, um, however it's constituted, whatever it entails, has a different set of categories that legitimize one's ability to serve in that priesthood. Uh, this just to sum up, is exactly what the author means when he says in 8.4 that if he, Jesus, were on earth, he would not be a priest at all because there exist those who offer the sacrifices, gifts in accordance with the law. That is a huge mark of respect for the authority of the law. On earth, even the Son of God could not be a priest because he's born into the wrong tribe, but he's not on earth. He has passed through the heavens and now serves in a different tabernacle, the heavenly one, which is actually the one that the earthly system is contingent on. So the resurrection I think is playing, uh, an absolutely critical role in the author's way of arguing for the legitimacy of Jesus as high priest in spite of the fact that he comes from the tribe of Judah.
0: Right. So I'm just going to be, I'm, I'm going to play devil's advocate. Yeah, yeah. Because um, you articulated that really well. And actually, I mean, I teach this, so I'm i am truly playing devil's advocate because I think that's a really convincing argument for all sorts of reasons. Um, and also, I think, um, goes a long way to explaining why we should be very leery about claims about the dualism of Hebrews being Platonic dualism. Right. Which is a yeah. whole other topic. Yeah, um, yeah. And my students who are nodding, they're like, yes, that's that's something we spend a lot of time talking right, about. Right. So um but you've received a lot of pushback for this. So I'm just gonna read um a couple of the things <laughs> from the reviews, uh which is maybe a mean trick, but I know that um I know I I just I sort of want to give you a chance to to respond sure. to some of these criticisms. Um So Nicholas Moore, in his review of your first book, um, says, Is Jesus' death no more than the event which sets into motion the sequence leading to atonement? Moffat appears keen to maintain the importance of Jesus' death, but at the same time can describe it only as a necessary first step. And Jared Compton wrote in his published review, the published review says, Moffat's thesis, while nicely argued and enthusiastically received, is nevertheless untenable and in his unpublished review he he just says i think the book's fundamental thesis is just plain wrong yeah sure um and then michael kibb says um he says that you adhere closely to the Sassinian view <laughs> right yeah. um so david um uh, why are you not a Sassinian, perhaps uh, oh, maybe we could start yeah. there okay. and 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 what else do you want to say that um that's that sets the record straight in these um I mean, I just picked these three critical reviews, and um, overwhelmingly, if you go and look at the reviews, they're very positive. And um, again, this is a this is a really important and in some ways paradigm shifting work on Hebrews. Um, that I think has has had so much to say, but also, you know, it'd be good to to hear the respond to the critics.
2: So, I mean, in some ways, um, there are certain chapters in the current book which are actually responding the it is not finished is is really an attempt to respond to some of this um in in a particular way um so you, you want to start with the point about socinus uh okay so I mean I'm not an expert on socinus but uh I do actually point to socinus because as far as I had been able to uncover at the point in which I was doing my doctoral work which was a a piece of work on New Testament scholarship, not a piece of work on the history of reception of Hebrews right. or even the history of doctrine, etc. Right. nor was it trying to make a systematic theological claim. So like even in some of those reviews, the language about the atonement, I really, until this recent book have tried to eschew talking about the atonement mm-hmm. because I'm really not viewing what I'm doing as making some kind of new systematic claim. Um, going back to some of our earlier conversation. But um, my understanding is that so Sinus was trying to make some systematic theological claims. And, um, you know, I, I'm, the, the Kibbe article has always puzzled me uh, for a number of reasons, some of which I, I just won't go into. But one of the things that, that's always puzzled me about that article is at the heart of my dissertation, I mean, I say this in the, in the, at the very end of chapter one, is the incarnation and I don't know what else that term means. Certainly I describe it as something involves the heavenly son of God becoming a human being Mm -hmm. uh, and then rising from the dead and returning to the father. Mm -hmm. I I just don't know how that could be read in such a way as to suggest that it bears a similarity to the bigger ideas that Sosinus was arguing for which are that the son of God uh, is not uh, the eternal son of God, but that he's the human being Jesus who then becomes adopted in some way into um, this identity of son of God. I don't read Hebrews that way. I say this clearly in the first book. Um, apparently it just got missed. Uh, I do refer to So Sinus because it struck me as really interesting that at least in some of the Reformation debates, So Sinus is, is of course like, you know, the big blue meanie. <laughs> um, behind a lot of Reformation arguments. Um, he, he clearly is arguing that Jesus presents himself to the Father when he ascends as a human being. So I simply pointed out, I never said it's a great reading that So Sinus offers. I said, whatever we think about So Sinus's bigger arguments, on this point, he was on to something. Now, um, the way that uh, I ultimately then can respond to that charge of having an account that's like Sinus, is um, in the chapter that I do finally do some history of reception on Hebrews in, which is also uh, in this new book. And I look at some patristic interpretation and it's just there. It's just there. And it's there in really robust and rich ways. I already alluded to Hippolytus and his Against Noetus. Um, But um, I I really genuinely believe I've only scratched the surface. Um, And, you know, what I'm trying to get at here is that, so Sinus didn't invent this idea. So Sinus, I assume, was picking it up from conversations that were heavily influenced by reading in The Fathers. And even people like Calvin um, have much more room for reflecting uh, on the ongoing session of Jesus, I I think it's in his commentary on Hebrews chapter 10, where he has this statement, Calvin, right now, the blood of Jesus is dripping before the Father. That's Calvin. Like, whoa, that's not the Calvin I heard growing up, but it's actually in his writings. So, so Sinus is not original on this particular point, although he highlighted it in a certain way precisely because he denied one of the things that I think Hebrews absolutely affirms and assumes, and that is that the eternal Son of God, through whom the Father creates, is the one who became the human being Jesus, and in the resurrection, is always now and forevermore the human being Jesus. He never stops being the Son of God, but he is now also the incarnate human being Jesus. So... That's how I would ultimately want to respond to the charge from Kibbe. Um, Some of the other ones, I guess, you know, I I know like Compton talks about my view diminishing the cross. I think that's actually a really helpful criticism Mm -hmm. because it it helps clarify certain important points. Uh, As I understand what Compton argues when he says that, and perhaps I've misread him, but um, as I understand that charge, that what I'm arguing diminishes the cross, what's really going on here is saying really all I have is the cross. Hmm. Because what I'm arguing is that there is more than the cross. And to say that there's more than the cross, if that diminishes the cross, it's really a helpful way of just putting out there very clearly that it really is the cross solely. Hmm. And this is not, I, I don't mean to even suggest that this is what Compton himself does, but I think actually this is one of the genius moves that certain kinds of more, should we say existentialist Protestant theology, seizes on. Really, all we need is the cross. So we don't, in these modern times, have to believe in the resurrection or the ascension. We can look at those as just ways of talking about the meaning of the cross. Now, again, I don't think Compton is saying that. But, uh, but to say that really it's all just the cross is a very helpful criticism. I'm glad that he put that out there. Because I think it allows us to then say, okay, let's just be clear. You have only the cross. I'm arguing that it's more than the cross. And what I would ultimately want to argue is that it's Jesus, I think Matthew says this, who saves his people from their sins, not the death of Jesus only. Uh, Which is really a way of saying it is the whole sweep of the incarnation, I hadn't thought about it in this way when I published my first book, but I actually did say that in my first book. It's the whole sweep of the incarnation. And this is a way then of going back to to the point I made much earlier in this conversation. Jesus solves all the problems, but he doesn't solve all the problems in the same way at the same time. You have to have Jesus. You have to have him as the one who died, yes, but even more as the one who was raised, who is... Seated at the right hand, who is interceding for us? Who is going to return? Um, you know, it's the creed, actually, <laughs> the the early creed. Like the, the, what do we know about the Son? He's the one born of the Virgin, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead and buried, etc. But ultimately ends with He will return to judge the living and the dead. All of this, as uh, I'm, I'm grateful for, to Tom Wright for pointing to this this very making this very point in his kind introduction to this new book, all of this is for us and for our salvation. It's not I, I really genuinely I, I just can I, I would say this and then I may be wrong on all kinds of things, but on this I think I, I'm not I'm I'm on this I stand. Um the cross is not enough. Only Jesus is big enough. And when Jesus is the one who died and rose and ascended. And is interceding, and will return. Um, that that so I'm grateful to Compton because um, it really does, I think, put out very cle- in very clear terms. Um, it allows us to talk about where the real points of of conversation, in my view, should be.
0: Right, and I think um, just coming back to that because I think one of the one of the things that that comes through in your answer there is that not just the academic question, right? This yeah. is this is so much more than an academic question for yeah. you. Um, I, I yeah, gather also right. for your yeah. critics, um, certainly for Tom um, in uh, and <clears throat> N.T. Wright in his introduction. Um, and he actually says, he says, when it comes to atonement, this is N.T. Wright, uh, especially with the larger vision of this word that Hebrews offers, the preacher or pastor is just as much involved. And I think that's a really wise statement. Yeah. Um, but I wonder if you could just, uh, sort of in our closing moments here, reflect on what you see as the the pastoral significance and importance of what you're saying.
2: So I do think that sometimes, um, again, I I see this, I'm not trying to say everybody falls afoul of this problem, but sometimes we can effectively have uh, 52 Sundays of Good Friday, Hmm. you know, where everything really is just Good Friday. I've been in Easter services, where it was really just Good Friday, this time with a smile, but it was still Good Friday. And and part of what I mean by that is like, you really never got beyond some notion of vindication or proof of acceptance that God had accepted Jesus. That was really what the resurrection seemed to be doing. I think pastorally, this approach opens us to, if, if there's merit to it, if there's truth to it, opens us to say, no, there's a lot more that Jesus has done is doing, will do, and that we look forward to um, that has to do with our salvation. Uh, So I think it's, if I can sort of gently prod on some um, of these traditions, uh, it means that we need, even in our account of the gospel, to recognize that there is more than the cross. Uh, As important as the cross is, even just to talk about the cross is already a kind of displacement right? Because it's Jesus who died on the cross. That's what matters. Um, but fair enough. I know it's, it's a pious symbol that's important. And let me just add too to those who are being critical, this, this is a healthy way to engage in scholarly discussion. Uh, I think it would be wrong for us to just throw out what has been an important element within certain kinds of, um, pro- and, well, actually since high medieval Catholicism, but also then Protestantism. So, um, so I appreciate that there really are things that we, uh, my critics and I view as being at stake, which mm-hmm. matter, and we should be, we shouldn't just accept them, um, they should be, you should be pushed back and thought, uh, because this is going to sound very strange if there's, you know, only this cross center view, but, um, but then there are, I think some other things pastorally where, uh, this, this might be helpful, um. One is, I I haven't talked much about this, and so I won't go into too much detail, but um, the idea of atonement within uh, the Jewish sacrificial system is about more than just dealing with sin. It's also about dealing with problems of um, mortality uh, and problems with our human bodies and the fact that they are subject to corruption. And uh, I think this can be... I would like to believe that this can be helpful for us pastorally and theologically Um, because, you know, sometimes people need to hear that there is atonement for them when they've been the victim, when they're not the sinner, but the one sinned against and their body is feeling being the victim. Atonement is a bigger category than just dealing with sin. And it's big enough to deal with the purification of their violated self. Um, and it's another thing that I think resurrection ultimately names, yeah. you know, for all of us. But um, And, you know, I guess I would also then um, want to make a final point that um, by thinking in these, these bigger ways, it allows us to, and, and I think this is actually where the sacrifice piece fits in the New Covenant in particular ways that are analogous to the Mosaic Covenant, the Old Covenant. Um, and that is, it allows us to really take seriously, and I think this is something that evangelicals should, would, would want to warm to, to take seriously the ongoing relationship that we have with our Lord Jesus, who is himself in an ongoing relationship with his Father. Um, and what he is doing is something analogous to what priests and sacrifices in the Old Testament were doing. Um, he is, I mean, Hebrews is clear doing it in some way that is far better. Uh, but there's still this sense, you know, to go back to that text from first John in which we confess our sins precisely because there is this ongoing relationship. And within that ongoing relationship, there are actually ongoing ways of dealing with this that, um, that are real, that involve something uh, within the Trinity, uh, and are not just reducible to um, making us feel better. Not just anthropology. Mm-hmm. These are some things that I think um, might give us some helpful ways to start yeah. thinking pastorally.
0: And I, I mean, we could talk for so I mean so much longer about any
2: one of those things. Yeah, no, you wind me up. Um, uh, I'm afraid.
0: And so and, there, and it's just careful. yeah, they're just. Um, I mean, in so much of it, I mean, I'm doing some work on atonement and body, and I think there's something, I, I'm going to pick your brain about that maybe later, but um, that's all the time we have uh, for this conversation. Um, and I just want to thank David Moffat for uh, joining us here, and I want to thank our our live audience who have been very quiet, <laughs> um, but have been listening atten- uh, attentively to what's been said. The book, again, is called Rethinking the Atonement new perspectives on jesus's life death and resurrection uh published by baker academic david thank you so much for joining us yeah, it's been you. a real My pleasure. pleasure and thanks to all of you uh for listening we'll see you next time you've been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology if this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire please consider a small donation of just two or five dollars per month Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study/donate.